Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compile that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts answers. Question, four or five experts answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not? And why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or unaffected or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. And I've got a very interesting guest. Uh, her name is Sandy Rosenthal. She's an author from New Orleans. Uh, she just came out with a book recently called Words Whispered in Water. She was there during Hurricane Katrina and affected by it, as were countless thousands and hundreds of thousands of people in New Orleans. So firsthand account is what we're going to hear about what went on. And it appears that um, the Army Corps of Engineers might have... Um, you know, had a hand in uh, in what went on in Hurricane Katrina. It wasn't just, you know, an act of God that caused all this. And uh, Sandy will get into the nuances of that. So I just want to welcome her. So Sandy, thanks for coming. You're very welcome. Yeah. Well, if you would tell me about your life in New Orleans right up until the time that the storm came, what, what was going on? And just give me a brief background. Well, I think the mo most important thing for your listeners is that I had no special training. I had I didn't even really know where our levees were here in the city. I, like most people, took protection from the federal government for granted, just like I assume a federal bridge on a federal highway won't fall down if I drive my car across it. So, mm. so Hurricane Katrina came along. We did evacuate for three weeks, which I think put me in a very special place where I had the opportunity to watch from afar with three, three weeks of belongings and uh, my checkbook and everything. And I was able to watch the disaster unfold. I watched the disastrous response to the flooding. And then I watched the people responsible try to cover that up. 
And it's because of that space that I was in, a, a relatively unusual space. So that explains I was not in the city when Hurricane Katrina arrived. I was safely evacuated in another city about three hours away in Jackson, Mississippi. So when the uh, the hurricane first hit and things happened, like, at what point did you realize, oh, my God, this is far worse than I could have ever imagined? And, let, you know, what does the story go from there? Realized um, as the the newspaper, I mean, as the radio reports filtered through one by one, it became clear that the levees had broken and that the city was filling up with water. And we did not learn that until 24 hours after the storm had passed through the city of New Orleans. It was a traumatic moment. I didn't know anything yet. And we, we assumed the worst, of course. We assumed our house was flooded. It did not. We assumed our business was flooded. It was not. We, we were one of the lucky ones. We live in an area of the city that's actually well above sea level, six feet above. That's another thing that we didn't know when, when the levees broke. So we, we realized that 24 hours later, but it would take another, I would say, six weeks before I began to figure out that this was not a case of monster storm. It was not a case of city below sea level. 50% of New Orleans is well above sea level and definitely not a case of anything that we, the locals, did or did not do. It became apparent about six weeks later that this was um, engineering failure on the part of the federal government. At what point did you realize that you were being thrown, oh, the citizens in New Orleans were being thrown under the bus and what did that take form like? What did it look like? Um, you know, what came out in the news and what was said where you realized, oh my God, they're, they're blaming us. Right. Well, the, the news reports um, in the, from the very beginning definitely blamed the people of New Orleans. Uh, the storyline went monster storm, city below the sea, and you know they're all corrupt down there. You name it, I heard it. Uh, that we doled the money and spent it on Mardi Gras, that our local officials were not paying attention to levy maintenance. You name it, you name it, we heard it. Uh, the list goes on and on. Okay, and we could we could talk for an hour on all of the ways that the people of New Orleans were thrown under the bus. The key moment, the epiphany moment, the eureka moment was when I managed to get a hold of a report uh, before a, a congressional hearing four weeks after the storm, just four weeks. Keep in mind, I was one of the few people that wasn't trying to figure out where am I going to live? How am I going to get a how am I going to earn money and where are my kids going to go to school? I was one of the very few in that position. And I was, I, I got a hold of that report and it said right there on page three that the Army Corps of Engineers is responsible for the design and construction of the levees in New Orleans and the local officials are responsible for maintenance. Well, I knew that the levee breaches, the levees that breached were only five years old. So in other words, if a building that's five years old fell to the ground, you wouldn't blame the janitor. You blame the architect, the engineer, and the contractor. And in the case of levies, the Army Corps of Engineers is all three. To me, that was the moment that I realized we're being blamed for this and it's not our fault. And when I decided, I'm going to jump right to when I decided to take this on as a personal mission, that was just two weeks later when I was speaking to a man from Louisiana, just, just three hours away in the city of Lafayette. And he told me the story I'd heard already, but he finished his story by saying that the people of New Orleans deserve no help. We should not have been living here and we deserve what happened to us. 
And that's what I call the face of the monster that powered me for the next 15 years and still to get the word out about why the levees broke in New Orleans. So how did you start this? I mean, what, you were sitting there one day and hearing all this BS and what, what flipped in you? What did you decide to do at that moment? Well, at that moment, I said, well, we've, I've got to figure out a way to tell the nation what really happened. And you have to realize, you know, I was, I was naive. I had no idea how I was going to do this, but I, it, I was just so angry. I was so mad about what that man said. You realize everyone I know suffered. I know people who died in the flooding and to be told to my face that this is our fault that, I mean, the ang- I'm still mad. I'm, I'm getting mad now just talking about it. But what I did is I channeled that anger. And I was also going through some post-traumatic stress as well, which is the subject of another another um, podcast on uh, mental problems that happen. But I channeled my anger into doing something. So my son is a techie. And my son and I put our heads together. And he agreed to design a website. Because at the time, I wasn't even living in New Orleans. So he... Uh, his name is Stanford, designed a website, and that we were going to put that up uh, on the net. And uh, we were going to amass supporters to push this, this uh, truth that we, we understood that we knew out to the American people. Keep in mind, this is 15 years ago. YouTube, I hadn't even heard of at that time. Social media really wasn't anything that it is today. But we did have websites. So let's talk about old-fashioned. We put the website up on the net and asked all of our family and friends to sign a petition on it. And we had put up a petition asking President Bush to make good on his promise to build back the levees bigger and stronger. And just just sign your name and forward this to all of your families and friends. It's good old-fashioned grassroots. And overnight, we had 200 signatures. So that's how we, that's what put us on the map. And we've been at it ever since. That's really cool. What So in trying to get attention to it and trying to build a list of people that, you know, would listen to what you had to say, like, what was your... What were some of your strategies early on, and then what did you change to that made it effective? Sure. Well, our initial strategy was some sort of event. So we planned what would be our kickoff rally, and with the with the goal of getting newspapers and reporters and media to come to this event and cover our. Still, at that time, it was our b- belief. You know, the the heavens hadn't opened and told me that I was right yet, but it was certainly what we believed to be the truth. So the heavens would eventually open. We'll get to that. <laughs> but at the time, it was still a very strong good theory that we had. So we planned our kickoff event. Every single media known to man came to this event and did report on it. It it was about an hour long event where we using a bullhorn, we talked about what we felt and we realized we needed to, Congress needed to help us because they're the people that that send the money and Congress needed to admit that this was a a federal mistake. And uh, so we did that first event. And we had uh, 300 supporters, which is a huge number of people, considering hardly anyone was even here in the city in January of 2006. Only a, a quarter of the city's population was back yet. Well, that event put us on the map very well. We did get a lot of media attention to it. And so we just continued doing events, writing uh, letters to the editor. Uh, One of the first and most important things that we did is we pushed for federal reform of the Army Corps of Engineers. And pushing for federal reform... Before we continue, 
I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Pushing for laws is a great way to get people to give you their name, address, and email because they understand what it's being used for. It's a great way to build a membership and a great way to build credibility. So that was our first major database builder, and that pushed us up to almost 20,000 supporters in a very short time. What was the premise? Like, what, what was your pitch to the people for the change in the law? What was it about? Just a quick summary. The change to fe- the federal law would require the Army Corps of Engineers to have outside peer review of their projects if they were over a certain dollar amount. And that was called the, eventually was called the um, McCain-Feingold Amendment. So we push. We pushed for that amendment. That wasn't our legislation that we came up with. It was their legislation. We put, so we uh, asked our supporters to support that legislation. And as I said, that was a big list builder. And then later we, we did our own uh, legislation, which was called the 829 Commission, which was a truly independent investigation of the levy failures. Up until that time, all of the investigations were not bipartisan. They were definitely partisan. So we need something independent. And so we pushed for that. And again, that was also a very, very good list builder. The the legislation didn't end up being passed, but it was still, again, a, a great way to build our membership and build our list. Yeah, what other tactics did you do to keep growing the list? And, you know, what did you send them as communications? What did they like to hear about? So the, probably the, the, uh, we had different, over the years, we had diff- different types of campaigns and ways to bring attention to what we were doing. And the list is many, but I think the, f- the first one was when we discovered, uh, by accident that the Army Corps of Engineers was sitting at their computers at headquarters and logging onto m- my, website and onto the local newspaper and harassing me, verbally harassing me online. And we caught them using IP addresses. Keep in mind, this was 2007. And the whole idea of, of IP addresses still wasn't well well understood. And so we caught the core basically with their pants down. And uh, this was very embarrassing for the core. And it actually ended up in a Pentagon investigation into that whole incident. At the end of the day, all they got was a noodle slap. Pentagon told the Corps, you shouldn't do that. And and that was the end of it. But nonetheless, the the damage to the Army Corps of Engineers credibility and it it sounded unethical and the damage is done. And that was 10 years ago. And still people here in the city remember that event. But I think probably what got even more attention is when we created a YouTube spoof of the Army Corps of Engineers, very cozy relationship with the American Society of Civil Engineers. That's an elite trade group here in the country. Mm-hmm. So you need, need to understand that the Army Corps is, you know, fooling Congress and fooling the American people and hiding that this was their mistake. And they did this in cahoots with 
the trade society. Now I, I go into a lot more detail in my book, but your listeners can just take my word for it. They were working together in cahoots. So what my, my organization did is we, we created a one minute long spoof of that cozy relationship. And we used children in a local high school. And we put the video up on YouTube and promptly the trade group, the ASCE, sent me and the kids a cease and desist letter, which basically means if you don't stop, we will sue you. I know. And and it's talk about how anger is a good motivator. Some of those high school, high school kids were in tears. They were worried they were going to get sued. Well, nothing is as good a motivator as anger. So that made me mad. And, but fortunately we live in America and in America, there are laws against threatening somebody with lawsuit just to shut them up especially when they're exercising a fully protected right to free speech. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Also, when they're minors, too, that would be a play in. It was another very embarrassing moment for the Army Corps of Engineers. And and fortunately, there are... What did you do to push back on that? You got the cease and desist letters. What did you do? Well, the first thing I did is I called the press. And the press is never your friend. And, and should never be treated as your friend. But there are times when the press is very, very happy to get an exclusive on a juicy story, like a bunch of high school k- kids getting s- sued. So I, I sent it off to the press. And because of all that press attention, and you see the press is allowed to disseminate the YouTube video under the terms of the press. You know, you can't sue the press. So the press ended up disseminating the video, giving the video even more attention than it had before we got the letter. So this was backfiring quite badly for the Army Corps of Engineers and the ASCE. Well, what ultimately what happened is because of all that press, two different law firms, one on each end of the country, offered to represent my organization pro bono. And that's a very that's awesome. cool. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the ASCE backed off. They withdrew their threat, but in the process, the the damage, the jam all over the faces, and this is key, just because nothing happened, there's so much jam and jelly all over these people's faces, and that's what people remember. People remember when people are embarrassed and when they've Mm. done something wrong, even even though they never had to pay a dime, even though there was no financial damages. These two events that I described, the video and catching the Army Corps harassing me online, the, the damage is untold. They'll never get past it. Yes. How do you know that that really had a problem? I mean, what effect did that have in the end, though, of in, embarrassing them, you know, pro- okay. rightly so, but what effect did it have? Well, in the end, and we're fast forwarding quite a bit, the Army Corps of Engineers, if you were to call them, uh, if you if you hung up the phone and called the Army Corps and said, is it true that the Army Corps is responsible for the levy failures during New Orleans, they will say, yes, it was a design failure. They'll say it now. 15 years later, they will say it now. But for, when my organization was going strong, this is just two, three years after this event, they, they were in denial. They, they would say, well, we're not going to talk about an event that happened uh, a year ago. We're moving forward. They wouldn't answer. What was one of the most difficult or dark moments that, uh, you know, once you had started your organization, what was the most difficult thing that you faced during the time? I believe the most difficult thing was watching the people of this city actually believe that they were at fault for living here. A lot of people didn't know the facts. A lot of people believed what they were being told, that our local levy boards and our local officials were asleep at the wheel. And because of that, that story that the Army Corps was telling, a lot of energy was put into reforming 
our local levy board when they weren't at fault in any way, shape or form. The, it was the Army Corps that was at fault. And so today, uh, because of that misguided attention, it was well-meaning, but they, what happened is that local levy board reform detracted a, attention away from the true, true culprit, which was the federal government. Uh, you realize nobody in this city got a dime from the federal government for, for losing everything. That's painful. Nobody. The, the, there was a lawsuit and the lawsuit had to be dismissed because the Army Corps of Engineers is protected from financial uh, liability due to a 95-year-old law, the uh, Flood Control Act of 1928, which says the, they cannot be sued if their flood protection projects fail. So the only money that anybody got was their little bit of insurance money they might have had and a little bit of road home money. Road home money, that's money that was given to people to help rebuild, but it was never, ever enough. Uh, nobody got made whole uh, in Louisiana due, with the money that was sent to us to rebuild. But what we do have is a gleaming, bright, shiny, new federal, federal flood protection system, which, while yes... It is much better than the one we had 15 years ago, and and it's the one we should have had. Uh, We're stuck with the incredibly huge bill to pay part of it, and we have to maintain it, which is unbelievably expensive. And we were not allowed to have any part in the new flood protection that was built. The Army Corps of Engineers built exactly what they want. And you will not find a single expert, including me, that will say that flood protection that we have now is the proper one for a city of this size, um, a number of people and infrastructure. But we do have a gleaming new uh, flood protection. Did you ever receive death threats? And How crazy did things get uh, at the peak? I um, did receive some harassment in the form of things that I think think are kind of silly, but uh, I got home from d- doing whatever I was doing and, and my SUV uh, had been, uh, my husband's SUV had been keyed in the night. It was full of signs that we were had had made to advertise our kickoff event, our kickoff rally. The, and every single panel of the car was keyed. So someone went through a lot of trouble to key that SUV. And then the very next day, I, I opened my door and there was a dead bird at my back door with that his head was chopped off. Well, somebody definitely left a message for me saying, leave us alone or we'll make things bad for you. But interestingly, that, that wasn't enough to scare me. I, I don't know, maybe it's because I've been raised in the country in a rural area and saw dead birds all the time. I don't know, but that didn't bother me. I, I chose to just not think about that. And I chose to just um, move forward with the work that needed to be done. I think that the biggest surprise to me was when the local uh, newspaper took sides with the Army Corps of Engineers. I spoke a few minutes ago about how I caught the Army Corps using their computers to, to, to uh, harass me. And so I went to the local newspaper and asked to see if they would just print out all of the comments coming from the Army Corps of Engineers IP address, which started 155838 and had a very definite number. It's something like caller ID. And all I wanted was the comments because I knew it was a lot because I knew I'd been getting a lot. I didn't care who they were. I didn't care what their identities were. I wanted to see the full extent of this harassment. I just wanted to see the comments, which are all publicly available if you think about it. Well, the 
It was called the Time Picayune. I was dealing with a particular individual and he was cooperating with me and he would, and he had actually printed out the, uh, the comments, which numbered in the many, many thousands in just a three month period. Meanwhile, this had been going on for two years, but he said, Sandy, I can't give this to you right away. I need to check with the, um, the staff attorney just to make sure that it's okay. So, uh, I, I waited a couple of days and then I waited a week and then, and then I thought, this is odd. Why am I not hearing back from uh, Mr. John Donnelly? And it turned up they fired him. And I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that he was fired because they were getting, because he was getting ready to cooperate with me. So then I had to continue to try to fight and get those comments. And it took, it took many more months of, of asking and, and insisting and please send me the comments. And they, I kept getting answers like, oh, we're thinking about it. We're checking with our, with our staff attorney in DC. And well, finally I get an answer. We will not give them to you. And there's no reason not to, we're just not going to do it. So I, knowing me, I didn't give up and I, I got our members to, to insist on it. And I showed up at the Tyne Picayune asking, we need to see these comments. And eventually the Tyne Picayune sent a letter out, basically not harassing me, but saying, I'm the bad guy. I'm the bad person. And that the Tyne Picayune is a bunch of wonderful people that live in New Orleans and they wouldn't ever do anything bad. And no, we're not going to supply the comments because we don't give out user information, user information about our users. Keep in mind, I didn't ask for user information. I asked for the comments. So the Time Picayune never responded to my request and in the process of non-responding made me out like the bad guy. And I go into all this in a lot more detail in my book, but it's clear that the Time Picayune was uh, helping to protect the Army Corps of Engineers. And I'm, I am afraid I'll know why. I don't know why. Hopefully one day I will. Now that it's been so many years, I mean, when did you stop working on this project, you know, actively? And then what have you transitioned to in the meantime? Well, I have not really stopped working. Uh, Six months ago, I published a book about my experience trying to get the truth out about the flooding. And I am getting ready to start my own podcast to continue discussing this and helping other people if they see a problem in their community. And I'm still working on putting levee breach sites on the National Register of Historic Places. So my work continues. It's just not with the same feverish pitch that it felt like it was for the first 10 years. What important lessons have you learned? And again, going into the future, I know you did your book now, and hopefully that gave you some closure. But what what are your goals from this point? What do you want listeners to take away from this? And, you know, what's new with you? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I want to mention something that, that the first thing out of my mouth today was I had no special training. I am not an engineer. I have, I'm not an attorney, but I still was able to get the truth out about an engineering disaster. And, and this is one of the things I'd like to help people understand that if you see a problem in your community, but feel there's nothing you can do, Uh, because you don't have special training, you need to push that aside. If you see a problem, and this is key, if you see a problem, you have, you're in a special place that you see the big picture, you see the nuances, you see what's going on, you see the detail. And if you understand that, and if you see that, well, you're the person to fix that. I have helped two other people get their word out 
And that's what I do. Get the word out. Don't get the truth out. One of those people that I helped is a biologist. Well, I have no biology training, but it was a biologist who had figured out that a miracle procedure uh, that was used to rebuild wetlands in Louisiana was in fact killing the wetlands, but that's not, but that's not all. It was also creating a toxic soup that was hazardous to humans. Okay. So this biologist figured this out, but he did had no idea how to sound the alarm, how to get heard. And I helped him. Okay. I'm not a biologist, but I was able to help him. I'm working with another individual on a racial injustice issue. I know nothing about how to fix racial injustice problems, but I know how to be seen and get heard and get yourself in the newspaper and get yourself on TV and get yourself on a podcast like this one. But these are the things that I know how to help people do. And I'm looking forward to helping more people achieve their dream by showing them that the tools and tips and tricks that I learn on the job, but I wish someone had told me right from the beginning. That's very cool. So if someone wants to get the word out about a cause that's very important to them, I'm, you know, I'm not asking you to give your whole, you know, your whole knowledge base here, but what are a couple of things that someone should think about sure. when they want to get the word out about something? What should they be aware of? Well, one of them I already covered is you don't have to be an expert in that field. In fact, it's better that you're not. Because if you're already an expert, then you might have your, reputa- your reputation to worry about, okay? If you have no experience in that, so you can put all that aside. So that's thing number one, I would say. But number two, a lot of people are afraid that if they sound the alarm and try to fix a problem, that they're afraid that they, they might get criticism. They'll, they'll get criticized. Well, I've learned criticism is your absolute best friend. Anybody giving you criticism is giving you free advice and free consultation because by, sh- by criticizing you, they are potentially pointing out ways in which your mission or your campaign either needs to be tweaked, okay, and it may, or they may show you a weakness that you can go after. See, critics, I always wondered growing up what it, what it meant. Some famous person said, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Well, now I know what that means. It's your critics that are going to give you the most information. And then they're not going to realize what they're doing if they do it. So that's number one. And then, and then the second thing, one more thing to people's getting ready to start out and may feel, oh, maybe I shouldn't be the one to do it. it they're worried that, they, that other people's feelings might get hurt, okay? That other people might not like it. And you have to get past that from the standpoint of when you're doing your, your mission or your campaign, it's not about people, It's about changing life for the better, whatever it may be, either sounding the alarm about toxic soup in the wetlands or a racial injustice issue. It's not about a one person or two people. It's about all of us or certainly a whole lot of people. And you've got to get past getting getting trapped into worrying about one person's feelings. If you have to tell that person, hey, it's nothing about you. I would have done this campaign no matter matter what happened or, or no matter who said it, no matter who did this or did that. But these are things that stop us in our tracks. And these are the things that, that you need to not worry about. It's not about people. It's, not, it's, about, it's about the idea and the mission and what you want to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, well, past year has probably given a lot of people, well, I don't know if they're aware of it, but I mean, the censorship and the vilification of people and of drugs and of 
you know, it's just been unbelievable the past year, you know, with the, the whole COVID situation. Do you think any differently now seeing that, like now seeing this play out, does that inform you? Does that, you know, bring up old grievances or does it, I mean, like, what do you see the, the COVID situation as? I'd, I'd like to know your perspective because it's very sure. different. Sure. Well, I've already mentioned in depth about how I was in an unusual place because of my preparation for Hurricane Katrina. Well, this exact same thing happened to me with the the COVID situation. My husband, who is a numbers guy, he looks at the numbers and he realized in as early as uh, mid-February that COVID was coming and that it, it was probably already here and that he he realized that um, the stores were all going to clear out and we'd run out of stuff. So while everybody else in New Orleans was at Mardi Gras, we were at Costco stocking up on supplies and medicine, all the things that you need uh, when all the stores shut down or when the stores went out of supplies. So sure enough, COVID hit in New Orleans. We were one of the first hot spots, you may remember, because it was right after Mardi Gras. So we were, I believe, the second or third big hot spot. And so here I was yet again in an unusual place. My house is all stocked up. I got nothing to worry about. And I was able to watch the the disaster unfold. I was able to watch yet again the federal government's disastrous response, just like for Hurricane Katrina. And I was able to watch yet again what was happening afterward and like the, the way it was being described and the things being told to the american people so it was for me covid is a 100% deja vu of, of what happened to me 15 years ago is it um i mean so well again also using your special uh, you know far seeing ability what what do you think is going to be the end game or what do you think is going to happen over this year 2021 with covid and then 2022, just, I just figured I'd ask. Well, my, again, my, my husband is numbers guy. Okay. And, and it was numbers guy that told me for pack for three weeks and numbers guy said, we need to stock up the house. So, so if you want to know about that, you probably have to go talk to numbers guy about what's going to happen with COVID. But what he does is he, he sees things that other people miss in the numbers. He's a total numbers guy. He doesn't make decisions based on feelings and, and who you like or what you like. He just looks at the numbers and he often can see things that, that other people miss. Okay, well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about you? Uh, should they get Words Whispered in Water? I, you know, I, I got my copy off Amazon, so I guess it's pretty much everywhere people need to go. But where, where can they go to find out more information from you? And if they want help with consulting, let's say, on dealing with a situation, where can they go? Certainly, if anybody wanted to know more about levy protection and whether or not safe levies are in their area, uh, the best place to go is my organization's website, which is called levies.org, L-E-V-E-E-S dot O-R-G. If you're interested in my personal story, what I went through, my family, how I was able to weather bringing the Army Corps of Engineers to justice uh, without burning out in the process, the, the best place to go is my book, Words Whispered in Water. Fortunately, most of the people who read it say it's a page turner and can't put it down. So that's cool. Who wants to read a yeah. textbook, right? And- no, it was very good. I, I, read, <laughs> I haven't finished that about halfway through, but it's very good. Thank you. And uh, that can be easily uh, purchased at um, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and, and, and small bookstores in New Orleans as well. Okay, very good. Well, Sandy, thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and your expertise. I appreciate it. Um, You're welcome. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.